Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Do you know how to calculate the exact amount you need to charge your clients in order to earn 20% profit on that project? It's simple to do if you know how. Learn how by downloading our free course, Profit for Small Firm Architects, today at entrearchitect.com slash free course. You are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, and this is episode 219. Welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark R. LePage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, you're in the process of launching a startup, or you may be an experienced small firm architect just like me, just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. What is it that we sell as small firm architects? Is it a, is it a pile of paper or a, a, a bunch of technical services or a, a legal process required to, to obtain a building permit? No. What we sell is a desired future state. A desired future state. And whether we're working with commercial or institutional or residential clients, our clients have an idea a visual narrative, a story inside their head of how they want their life to be in the future. We've all experienced the moment when our clients finally get it and they understand the value of what we provide, right? We all 
have experienced that. But it comes at the end of the project. But at that moment, the understanding of the value of what we do, at that late moment, it's too late. We need them to understand the value of what we do before we do it, before we propose it, before we price it. There is a process to properly pricing our creative services. There are principles and rules, and today we're going to talk about them with someone who works with creative professionals every day, helping them to understand how to win without pitching. This week at Entree Architect Podcast, Pricing Creativity with author Blair Enns. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and much more at RCAT.com, and FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work that you love. Blair Enns, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's my pleasure to be here. It's great having you here. Your book, Pricing Creativity, is trending here at Entree Architect Academy <laughs> and in the community. I keep hearing your name. I keep hearing the, the titles of your books. And so this is really going to be a, an interesting conversation, not only to me, but but to our listeners for sure. Great. Um let me introduce you to uh, to our audience here. Blair Enns is the sand in the free pitching machine. Through his sales training program for creative professionals, Win Without Pitching, he's on a mission to change the way creative services, much like our architectural services, are bought and sold the world over. He's the author of The Win Without Pitching Manifesto and his latest book, Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. He's also a co-host with uh, David C. Baker on a fantastic podcast called Two Bobs, where Blair and David have a weekly conversation about the business of creative services and with sort of a, a specific focus on sales and marketing. That's usually what they, they focus on, which is something that we ought to learn more about. So I highly recommend you go check that out. And Blair lives way up north in a small room. Well, I don't know if it's small, but it's a remote mountain village uh, of Kozlo, British Columbia, up in Canada. And he's also an expert on the question, how do I win new business without giving away my work for free? So that sounds familiar, right? So this is going to be a very interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, but before we do that, Blair, I want to get into your origin story. I want to I want to know where you sort of discovered your purpose and your passion and give us your journey to where you are right now. Yeah, I was raised by wolves. Um, <laughs> awesome. I've never met anybody like yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I do live in a remote, small remote mountain village uh, in Caslow, British Columbia, Canada. The po population is about 900. It's on the shore of a 90-mile-long lake, home to the largest strain of rainbow trout in the world, set between oh, two mountain ranges. So it cool. is a very um, idyllic setting. I didn't grow up here. I've been here for about 18 years. I kind of grew up professionally. I grew up in the center of the country, um, Canada, 
but I grew up professionally in the advertising and design professions on the business side of both of those businesses. So I started as an account manager and then very quickly moved into new business roles as I found I had a bit of a strength for it. And new business is the is the term that uh, most of the creative professions, and when I say that, use that term, I'm talking primarily, I think of it primarily as design-based and advertising-based professions. But that's the code freeze we use for selling or sales because we don't like to use the S word and I suspect architects don't like to use the S word either. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so my, even though I, I grew up there, at some point I discovered this little mountain village in the middle of nowhere and I just had to live here and I convinced my wife and I think we had two or three, we have four kids, they're all grown now, um, but I convinced my wife to move here. And so I started Win Without Pitching initially as a consulting practice as a way to earn a living so that I could drop out of the advertising business and live in this little town in the middle of nowhere. And I, the consulting practice ran from 2002 to 2012. And then in November of 2012, I was um, flat on my back in bed with pneumonia. I'd, that was the fourth time I'd gotten sick that year on three different continents. And I had this thought that I needed to change my business. My business model was trying to kill me. So I had to kill it before it succeeded. And I decided to transition the consulting practice. I felt like I'd pushed a solo consulting practice as far as I could. In hindsight, the truth is I didn't. I just I ran into limitations. I now see what those limitations were. But I decided to kind of switch the model over to a training company. So I began to scale up. My kids were grown and didn't need me so much. I could focus more on the business. And I started hiring people and building a training organization. So since um, early 2013, when Without Pitching has been a training, primarily sales training. We don't use that S word a lot because it scares people, but we're really a sales training organization for creative professionals. Yeah, which is which is us. I think that uh, you know a similar timeline to that 2000, late 2012, early 2013, similar timeline to Entree Architect. We sort of uh, we're birthed around the same time. And so uh, it's exciting to, to see uh, you doing what you're doing and, and to see you know, how it parallels with what we're doing. And, and what you're talking about with sales and pricing and all of the things that creative professionals that are not architects are having that you're sort of focused on. Um, when I started reading your books and, and talking to some of the members inside the academy who are, who are um, following you and doing sort of following some of the, your, the prescriptions in your books, um, it's very clear that what you're talking about is, are, are many of the same issues that architects are talking about. Um, yeah, I th I, you know, from what I know about the architecture business, again, it's not at kind of the center of our market, but it is, uh, we do get a lot of inquiries. We have some architects uh, of various types in our program. So what I, for, from what I know about architects, and I've had lots of conversations with them, I think there are so many similarities um, on, the, on the business challenges, whether it's sales, marketing, pricing, or even the other issues that I'm, that I'm sure you get into in your training program. Yeah, I, I think that architects, for sure, and I'm sure that many of the creative professionals that you're dealing with see themselves as uh, as artists. You know that yeah. the creativity comes first, and yeah. that the that the money sort of m just follows. You know, you do your thing, and you're happy because you're doing your thing. And you know, if I get paid enough to pay my bills, I'm happy, right? I mean, so do you do you see that a lot in your community as well? 
Yeah, I'm fond of saying in the beginning, it's a, you go to work for two reasons. It's a generalization, but it works. Those two reasons are fun and money. And in the beginning, when you start your own small practice, you kind of tell yourself, well, it's mostly about the fun, right? So, and if you see yourself as this pure artist, then it's the topic of money is a tricky one. It's a tricky conversation that we have with ourselves and it makes for tricky conversations with others. So I think sometimes we um, um, delude ourselves and we say things like, well, money's not important. Or we think, well, the money will come eventually. I'm doing what I love. Um, so you, you're, you're doing it for the fun. And then one day you wake up after a few years in the business and you look in the mirror and you have this honest conversation with yourself and you say, I'm tired of having fun. Now I would like to make some money. And I say to all of the young designers out there, you, I promise you, you will get there. Yeah. You will get there and you will have to reconcile your own ideas around money and capitalism and entrepreneurship and charging people lots of money. And um, and you'll maybe kind of tell these little lies to yourself for a little while, for a few years. But at some point, there's this there's this conversation with yourself that you're just putting off and it's going to happen. Yeah, I can I can hear a lot of heads nodding right now. <laughs> without a doubt, without a doubt, I think that that they're uh that they're definitely resonating. So, so what do we do about that? I mean, if, if, if we do get, find ourselves in the position of being a, a an architect, a creative professional, um, who started this because we love the idea of design love the idea of being an architect, never trained in architecture. I, I mean, in business, we've never been trained in sales or marketing. It's all things that we have to learn from ourselves, which is why I, I launched Entree Architect in the first place to sort of embrace the idea that we need to learn these things and give give our community a place to learn it. Um, how do we, how do we, what do we do next? What do we do once we realize that we have to, you know, embrace it? Yeah, if, if I, if I were in a room full of young designers or young architects who are just starting out or just finishing school, I would probably say to them, listen, if you're, if you're going in, if you're people who are just going into business for themselves, um, the business part of it is probably even more import, important than the art. And if I'll just, so I have a bias and people might kind of just roll their eyes at that. They've heard um, it from me. So, so they, if they're okay, listening so here, they've heard it. Let, let's, let's say those two parts are equally important. I would say, um, you know, you do, you do need to get a business education. You, you can't, in I'm sure this happens in school for architects as it does with designers. So I, I, there's this there's this kind of loop that happens. An idealistic designer goes out into the world, and an architect reads Fountainhead or something. You know, reads you know it's is inspired by a really kind of inspirational idealistic, you know, idealistic ideal inspired by these ideals, and they're kind of indoctrinated in school by these professors and they take these ideals out into the world and they clash with the reality of the business world. And this person who sees herself as an artist first and kind of eschews the business skills that really should be built to help, help her succeed holds on to this notion, this conflicting notion of it's about the arts. Let's just put the business aside or let's treat the business part of it as secondary, including pricing and selling, et cetera. And then they go as far as they can, burning themselves out 
and they're not really able to capture the rewards of any kind, let alone financial, to make it all worthwhile. And in the end, towards the end of their career, these people go back to the schools from whence they were born and they teach the same ideals. And that's a loop that I see. And maybe it's just something that I imagine, but that's just a vicious loop that I see happening all the time. So I've heard from so many different designers that, you know, these kind of older professors who've been out there in the world are saying it's not it's about the art. It's about the art. Well, not is the moment you put up your shingle and say, I'm in business for myself. Um it's no longer just about the art. You have to reconcile these two things as the art and the business. And it's not um, your, it's really about value creation for your client. And when you get good clients and you learn how to kind of select and, and shape good clients and shape good engagements, then those best engagements will allow you to bring your, your artistic skills to the fore but always to the ultimate goal of delivering value to the client. And we have to recognize, and we'll get into this when we talk about pricing, it's the first principle of pricing really, is that value is subjective. So you might have some ideas of what you want to do with every project that you design, but it's not just as soon as you decided to go into business, it's not just about you. It's not just about art. If you want to do art, you go do art for yourself. You design your own projects. You're in business. Your focus is the client. Your focus is in creating value for the client. And you must recognize that every client values different things to different degrees at different times. Yeah. And, and they've heard me say profit, then art. If you focus on the profit first then you have plenty of time and resources and money to go practice the art. To go, to, Profit gives to, you the room, right? right? It gives you the room. And when you're underbidding on projects, et cetera, you have no room to move. You have no room to make mistakes. You don't have enough time to think the required to, to do the art. So yeah, profit creates the white canvas that allows you to do art. It's not the other way around. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and you've written two books on, on, um, on the process of sales, uh, win without pitching manifesto, which I'm halfway through excellent book. Um, looking forward to finishing that up. That sort of focuses around 12 proclamations, uh, sort of how to, how to reprogram and rethink about how we sell as creatives. Um, excellent book and your, your more recent book that just came out pricing creativity, uh, which is all about pricing specifically about pricing. How do we price what we do? And, uh, and there's six rules inside that inside that book that that sort of gives you the the prescription for figuring out what your how your uh, you should price your services for. Um, you want to go through some of these ideas of of what's in the book and how it how this book the book is not a typical book either. It's sort of like a sort of like a guide to how to price sort of step by step program that you kind of walk through. Yeah, I don't. I've heard people say this isn't a book. Why do you call it a book? And it, we'll get into that a little bit. Maybe I'll back up to the first book, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto, yeah. was published in 2010. So that's a 24,000 word manifesto. It's a it's a, it's designed to kind of put forward an ideology and to inspire people. I think of it as the Yes You Can book. Yeah. 
Um, I want people to read. I, I even the the, sh- the actual shape of it, the thickness of it, the word count. I came up with all of that after I decided what size this book should be, and then I wrote the word count to the actual shape of the book because I wanted it to fit on the back of a toilet tank. <laughs> I imagined it in the bathrooms of of uh, artists, designers, architects, and it's sort, and of, wanted, it's sort of shaped and looks like a sketchbook. Yeah, and uh, and I um, I wanted it. I wanted you to look at it and think, okay, I could read this on my next flight. If you're getting on an airplane, you can read it in about two hours. I hired, you know, when your audience is creative professionals, I hired a designer whose hobby was designing typefaces for Bibles. I either decided if it's going to have to be very well illustrated or about about the words, and I chose to go just about the words. So it's got a very timeless look to it. And um, yeah, again, it's the Yes, You Can book. I wanted people to be inspired by it. And um, Pricing Creativity, which came out in January of 2018 this year, is I think of it as the Here's How To book. And you know, I mentioned and you kind of alluded to the fact that it's a, more, a bit more than a book. It's really a pricing system right. and it's yep. available in multiple formats. There's the ebook, there's the manual, which is the ebook printed in a binder with tabs and it has an additional the manual has an additional tools section i'll come back to that and then there's the video version it's basically i've taken the whole book and i've broken it down into five videos so if you're not a lot of a lot of my audience would prefer to listen to a book or watch me while listening to it so they put it on in the background and they're really just listening to these videos while they do other things so i guess you you could think of it as it's really a system. And when I was writing it, I imagined the manual. I wanted to write, um, a, if, if my audience was going to just read one book on pricing, I wanted it to be this book. And I wanted them to read the first three sections, the principles, the rules, and the tips, and then put it the physical thing on a shelf. And then the next time they had to price and engagement or write a proposal, I imagine them reaching to the shelf, pulling open this manual, re um, familiarizing themselves with, with the rules and then flipping to the tools section and using the tools, the templates, the checklist, et cetera, to help them craft the next proposal. So I wanted it to be kind of readable enough that enjoyable enough to read once through and then for it to be a reference manual that lived on people's shelves. So it's quite different from the manifesto. They're serving two different purposes. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, the uh, pricing creativity is, it's sort of like a plug and play business system. It's for sales system, sort of follow the step by steps, use the yeah. tools to, to make it happen and, and watch it happen. Yeah, the first section principles, I say, I call, I say the section is called principles, understand these. And there's four chapters in it. And what I did is I took all of the pricing theory and behavioral economics that's all wrapped up in the subject of pricing. And there's so much more than I ever imagined there would be like underpinning pricing theory. When I first began on this journey years ago, I thought I'll read a few books on it, become an expert. I mean, I've read dozens of books now. So I, I thought, well, my creative professional audience, they're not going to read all the material that I've read. I want to get the principles down into as few as possible. So I, I say, here are the four key principles you need to understand. Then the next section, 
I thought, okay, what are the rules? I'm going to get them to as small, as small a number as possible. The rules are things that you must do every time you are pricing an engagement. So I got that down to six. And then every other piece of advice I put in the broader section, the biggest section of the book, which is called tips. Um, so tips are really, you know, it's advice for specific situation guidance. And the tip section is broken up into constructing your proposals, alternative pricing modules, uh, negotiating, and then what I call the next level, taking your pricing to the next level. Right. So the tips is sort of like uh, how to leverage and execute what you've learned in the principles and the rules. Yeah. 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 It's really, really well done. Um, this, the six rules, I just want to read the six rules because it's, it's, it, it will sort of, uh, I think it'll trigger some light bulbs in our audience. Um, price the client, not the job, which I think is not typical for architects. I like to talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah. Offer options, anchor high, uh, say a price before you show the price, master the value conversation, and limit unpaid proposals to one page, uh, unpaid proposals to one page. Now, the first one, price the client, not the job, you're essentially saying you don't have one price, right? That, that you're- right that you don't just say, okay, I charge X you know, dollars per hour or X percent. It depends on the context of, the, of your client, correct? Yeah, so if you're at a party somewhere and somebody says, oh, you're an architect, what do you charge for X? And X might be, you know, kitchen renovations. Well, it depends on the size of the kitchen. Well, Mike, square footage is this. Well, I would charge about that much money. You shouldn't have an answer to that question. And I don't know if that's the appropriate example for your target audience. Um, in my world, you know, if it's a simple solo graphic designer, what do you charge for a logo? You, a designer should not have an answer to that question because as I point out in the book, logos price are cost somewhere between $200 and a million dollars. It's actually, the range is much bigger than that. They're anywhere from free to, you know, I'm familiar with companies paying $7 million for a logo. So, um, and, and the difference is not, so you want to leave yourself room to charge differently because the first principle of selling creativity or value-based pricing is the, the principle that all value is subjective, that different people value things differently. Value is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. So you, in your pricing, you want to leverage this principle that's known as price discrimination. And it sounds like a horrible thing. It's actually a wonderful thing. And you can, it's also referred to as willingness to pay. And the underlying idea is different people are willing to pay different things for essentially different amounts for essentially the same thing. And your job is to let them. And the reason they're willing to pay different amounts is the value to them is significantly different. So wrapped up in the idea of price discrimination is, is so you might think, you know, it's licensed to try to charge as much as possible. Absolutely it is. But also wrapped up in that idea is the notion that, well, what you think something is worth X, but this client you're talking to, they really only value it at 0.5 X. So you have to make the decision, is it worth your while to deliver it at 0.5 X? Or should you find another solution at 0.5 X? Or should you walk away from this client? Yeah. Does that, does that lead into the second one where you offer options? Because I think that happens often with architects. Um, that that our clients undervalue what we 
what, what our services are, that they don't ever expect that we're going to charge as high as we really need to charge uh, for our services. And so, um, so if it is 0.5x, what do you do? I mean, do you, how do you, how do you handle that? Yeah. And there's, um, uh, there are a lot of different components to the answer, but yet absolutely, uh, uh, part of the answer absolutely is the second rule of pricing creativity, which is offer options. So you you think um, your your typical client scenario, um, a client comes to you and says, "Here's the project. It's a new build or it's a renovation, and um, give me a proposal." So you you go back and work some sort of math, and your math is either based on the inputs of time and materials, or it's on the outputs. It's a percentage of the build budget. Um, in your markets example, uh, and then you come back and say, here's my proposal. Well, your, um, when you put forward any proposal, whether it's based on the inputs of time and materials, the outputs of a percentage of the budget, or based on the value to the client, that's another conversation, we'll get to that, doesn't matter how you price it. If you put forward a proposal with only one option, you're essentially putting the client in this take it or leave it position. And for you to ever be doing that, you really should be, first of all, you should never do that. You should never put your client in that take it or leave it position. Um, but if you do, it, it implies that you have learned everything you need to learn about the client to put forward the only solution that is appropriate for the client. The reality is uh, your client has a choice to make. They're not even, their brain is not wired to look at your proposal for $50,000 in fees and say, oh, that's worth $50,000 or that's not worth $50,000. Their brain is not wired to make that decision. Their brain is wired to make these contextual comparisons. So if the reason you're providing options is you want to enable comparisons, you want to facilitate comparisons, and you want to, it's known as choice architecture, you want to, by the way you frame the comparisons, you want to be able to have some impact on the decision that gets made. So the client's brain is really wired to answer the question, which of these options is the best value? And if you don't put forward options in your proposal, then what does the client do? The client goes away and gets something else against which to compare your proposal. So they think back in their mind about other things that they paid $50,000 for, or they go get two other bids, right? And there's lots of reasons they do it, but really they're not, they can't subjectively perceive this, like the, the value of your proposal. They can only make comparisons and say, this one is the best value. So your job as the salesperson in this situation, when you're putting forward the proposal, is to enable and facilitate the comparisons that the client is going to make anyway. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's exactly what happens is that we typically uh, prepare a proposal and it's one price, take it or leave it. And then yep. they go and they get two or three other prices from other architects and they make that comparison. And very often it's based on price, who's got the lowest price. And and so what you're saying is if, if we pr- uh, provide a proposal with multiple options, it's less likely that they're going to need that 
other comparison that you're providing some sort of context within your proposal to be able to make a comparison and pick the one for them that works best for what they want to do. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, RCAT, and FreshBooks. For years, when I needed information on manufacturers' products, I headed straight to the internet, straight to google.com. And then I sifted through the hundreds of results, maybe thousands of results, to find the one or two that might be the link that I'm looking for. And more often than not, it wasn't. It wasn't what I was looking for, or it was outdated, or didn't meet my requirements. So what do I do? I go back to the search engine and I start all over again. And this could take all afternoon to find the one or two or three products that I'm looking for. Does this sound familiar? Do you do this? There is a better way. Our friends at RCAT. RCAT.com, A-R-C-A-T. Find what you're looking for in seconds. Building product information, BIM, CAD, custom specifications using their exclusive tool, SpecWizard, and keep it all online right there in one place using their cloud-based project organization tool, Charette. Here's an idea. Make RCAT a part of your efficient project workflow. Use it on every project. Just type in entrearchitect.com slash RCAT. That's entrearchitect.com slash RCAT. Type that into your internet browser and add it to your favorites. And then on every project, use RCAT. Just click that link, you'll go straight to RCAT and you'll find everything that you're looking for in seconds. Find what you need fast and make more money on every project. EntreeArchitect.com slash RCAT. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for your whole team, buy project, and get organized with reports, communication, and notifications. And getting started with FreshBooks, this is so ridiculously easy. Most people send their first invoice seconds after starting their free trial. It's a click of a button. The same goes for tracking time, managing expenses, collaborating with contractors, and viewing financial reports. It's simple, fast, easy, life-changing. And if you need help at any time, free award-winning customer service is a phone call or an email away. I've used it. It works. And if you ever have second thoughts, don't worry. On top of their free trial for Entree Architect listeners, you get a free 30-day money-back guarantee so you don't ever have to worry about choosing fresh books. So give it a try. It's free for 30 days. Just visit entrearchitect.com slash freshbooks and then let them know that we sent you by sharing Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's entrearchitect.com slash freshbooks to access your free unlimited 30-day trial. So RCAT and FreshBooks, please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. Even if we're not talking about pricing based on value and we haven't really got there yet, even if you're even if you charge a percentage of the of the project budget, right? So you might actually, you might, um, um, let's say, and I don't know what the standard is, but let's say it's 15% is kind of the standard in your geographic area for architectural fees for um, 15% of the project. Yep. And so you're worried because somebody's underbidding at 13 or you'd really like to be able to charge 17. Well, you might think of it this way. You might think of 
having a proposal with three options that says um, the middle option for 15% of the of the total build, we will provide these services. The lower option, if you want to save money, we can do it at 12.5%, but here's what you get and here's what you give up. And you show what the client's giving up by making them available in the higher priced options. And then the uh, highest price option, and you would lead with the highest price option because that's rule number three, anchor high, and we can talk about that in a minute. But in the highest price option, you would just imagine, well, what would, like if this, if this client were, if money meant nothing to them, if they're like, what's the most that we could do for them? What, what is our concierge level service? And in, in asking that question of yourself, you should start to come up with answers that maybe even transcend the lines of typical architectural services, right? And think bigger and what else you might do. And you might say for 20% of the project, um, we'll do these other things. And so if you, if we're pricing based on value, then we're working really hard to determine, you know, what is it that the client values? What is it that they might be willing to pay a premium for? Because one client might value some service of yours or deliverable of yours far higher than another client. So you wouldn't, I'm not advocating to anybody that you have, you take this principle of offering options and always offer the same three options to the same three different clients or say, or sort to all of your clients or prospective clients. I mean, you could do that. That would take you further forward than where you are now. If you're just offering these take it or leave it proposals, but back to the first rule of price, the client, not the job, what you put in each of those options and what the price or the percentage is changes from client to client. And, and it's all what you're talking about all comes back to, um, value pricing, right? The value conversation. Could yeah. you ex- explain what that is? Cause I don't think architects understand what that is. Yeah. So master the value conversation, that's the rule number five. And it's where I find, um, it's the longest chapter in the book. It's where I hope to bring a lot of value to the topic of pricing, because I know a lot of professionals who are familiar with the principles of value-based pricing, but aren't able to do it. And the reason they're not able to do it, it's not because they don't understand the theory, it's they haven't mastered the skills. And this is really a sales skill, like in a one-on-one conversation with people where you're facilitating this conversation and, and, and kind of gleaning information from people. So if you want to price based on value, you really need to have a proper value conversation and a value conversation starts with, you know, what is it the client wants from this project? I refer to it as um, the desired future state, uncovering or committing the client to their desired future state. So uncovering it, getting them to describe everything that they want, and then getting them to commit to it, which is just as simple as saying, if I understand you correctly, if I've heard you correctly, you want all these things to be true at the end. Is that right? That's right. So you start with that, and then you add, the next step is to identify the metrics. How will we know when these things are true? What are the things that we will measure? And then you move to the subject of value. What's this worth? If we did all of this, what's this worth to you? And again, it's things are worth different amounts to different people at different times. And then from there, once you get a sense of the value and this might, you know, it's depending on what business you're in, that part of putting an economic value on things, some of some of which are really kind of emotional, that's tricky. That's the part 
probably the hardest part of the conversation where you need to have a bunch of value conversations to get better at kind of navigating that and pulling out of the client and you're not reading a script and you're really focused on the client trying to really determine like what is what would this be worth to you to create an environment like this where every morning you have like you're having breakfast and your kids and it's at your this beautiful like what is that worth um and then once you uncover kind of the value of this idealistic like the the, the ideal the client's desired future state then you start offering some pricing guidance and and pricing guidance really means, okay, I'm, I'm going to come back to you with a proposal and it's going to be in the Y to X range. And we start with Y, the high number, not the low number, because pricing creativity rule number three is the anchor high. And there's all kinds of – there's Nobel Prize winning science behind this, the idea that the first piece of information on a subject really skews our decision making. So we start with the high number and the client might choke on it. So I might say, I'll come back to you. Uh, quite quickly with a proposal on how we can help with some options in the $100,000 to like $20,000 range. How does that sound? And so we're following another rule here, which is say a price before you show a price. Before you go away and craft a proposal, you want some feedback you want to give you want to foreshadow or give the client some sense of what the project is going to come in at you want to start with a really big number and that really big number is design, is there it's actually bigger than what you probably think certainly what you think the client is going to buy it's there to make um, the num other numbers within that range look more affordable. And again, there's all kinds of science behind right. it. And that's the anchoring that you're talking about. So you have yeah, a, that's a, the anchor. Anchor the the price that you're you're really targeting with a high price that makes your target price seem much more reasonable. Yeah, and then you go away, you craft your options, and you say, all right, here are my three options. Here's we don't have a hundred thousand dollar option, but for ninety thousand, here's what we would do. And and again, the number might be a function of a percentage of the bill. That's your prerogative. Um, I would suggest that it's in the interest of architects to start moving away from that. I would suggest that you could use that as a rough math, as a starting point or as sort of a stress test. Um, but it's probably in your interest to start moving away from that and just say for this price, here's how much. And you know what included in your options, one option could be, well, we'll charge your percentage. We think it's going to be at this, but if it's the project is higher than obviously our fee is higher. If it's lower, it's lower. But clients also value and are willing to um, pay a premium for price certainty. So if there are overruns on the project, well, then the architect's fees go up as well too. And to mitigate against that, they might actually pay a small premium and maybe even a significant premium just to know that at the end of the project, your fee is X, no matter what happens on the build side. Yeah. Yeah. And the the idea of the value conversation, what you're talking about with the desired future state, I think that's a really important piece of what you're talking about here for architects. Because oh, yeah. very often architects are being valued on drawings, on the deliverable, you know, on this package of paper that we're going to hand off. Yeah. And the truth is we're not that's not our that's not what we're providing. Our service is that desired future state that we are going to create a new life for this client. Oh, you just to, I, I, Yeah, I just think of the impact that architects have especially in who are doing residential work 
um, but also commercial too. But the impact of that architects have on people's lives is profound. And the idea that it gets re- reduced to drawings is a little bit absurd. Yeah. And, and without having that conversation of, and, and going through that process and honing that and really fine tuning that and mastering that conversation, um, the client will never realize that they'll think they're buying paper. So it's yeah. your job to to have this conversation with them, not realize, not having them realize that this is what you're doing, but you're actually educating them on on what you actually do as an architect. That you're actually going to create these this design. You're going to create provide these services, and the value is the future state is is your life when this is all done. That's what you're valuing, and now the value goes way up because that's worth a lot more than a pile of paper. Yeah. You got it. It doesn't matter what you're selling. You're you're always selling to the client a better version of themselves off in the future, their desired future state. So it's your job to really, and we give you a framework for doing it in the book, to really get in there and uncover what it is that the client really wants. What is there? It's not, you know, and I, I think architects in, understand this quite obviously because it's not just, you know, it's 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 so easy to make the transition from the feature of of the of the design to the benefit. It's so easy to imagine the person sitting there having coffee in the morning or walking into the building in the morning or pulling up and and the um, the impact that that has. The challenge is that there are different forms of value. You could take all the value that you would cr- create or help to create and you p- can put them into three buckets. The first two are economic. So there's revenue gains and cost reductions. And then the third one's the big, murky, messy one that's known as emotional contributions to value. And I suspect that so much of an architect's work is in that third murky bucket, in that emotional contributions to value. You can't, there's not a lot about your designs that are going to, I mean, I'm sure certain things will save you money. Maybe in some commercial instances, you you know, the design will make you more money, certainly in retail. Um, but really, especially in the residential stuff, you're, it's so emotional. Therefore, it's vital that you kind of have a framework for uncovering all of the emotional stuff and getting the client. You really want to put the client into the future and have the project have gone swimmingly. Everything's been wonderful. You're experiencing it. Now you're looking back. Tell me about the journey. Tell me about everything that's wonderful right now and tell me about the journey. And then you get that out of them. And the thing, one of the interesting things about a value conversation is when you get good at it, you will, one day you will realize that your entire focus has shifted in these conversations with clients. It used to be about you thinking what you could do, what you could sell them, et cetera. And then you realize that, you know what, I, I don't even think about solutions until I've had the client kind of effusively describe this wonderful desired future state. And then we've talked about the money side of it and then, you know, the value. And then I've thrown out a price range. And it's only then in, after the value conversation, after you've done all these things and you've thrown out prices, it's only then that you're really free or you really should start thinking about your solutions. And so that's the longer you've been pricing and selling the old way, the harder it is to make this transition because it is a fundamental 180 degrees flip 
on how you enter into these conversations and where your focus is on the conversations. And man, clients can feel it when you are on the buying side of somebody who is completely focused on your desired future state and the value they might help create for you. The feeling is night and day different from somebody who's thinking about hours or percentages or build solutions. Yeah, so important. I think that is the biggest takeaway of what our conversation is all about is, is that conversation and reframing the idea of, of what we're providing within the client's mind. I, I, and I think that, that very often when our, when our services are over and our, and our client is living in that project or working in that project that we've created, they understand at that point. But th at that yeah. point, it's too late. And so what our job needs to be is to create this conversation. How do we get them to that point? Because we all recognize that. As architects, we recognize that moment when you go and visit the client in the finished project and they, they tour you through the, their space and they show you the new kitchen and they show you the, how the pantry opens in the, in, the, in, the, in the kitchen and they're just so happy about it and they start talking about how it affects their kids and how their kids are learning better now because of that space that you designed. Now they get it. So how do we now take all of that emotion and all that thought and all that experience and bring it to the front end? And bring it to the beginning of this process where you're pricing your value, you're pricing your, uh, your the value of what you're doing. Um, that's what we need to do. We need to learn how to have that conversation so we can get them to that future state before they're there. Yeah, and let me give you a marketing idea just to build on exactly what you just said. So we, I don't have television at home. I guess haven't had for over twenty years, but now that it comes in the internet. But when my wife and I, who's my business partner, when we travel for work. We're in a hotel room. She's always watching HGTV and we're always watching the renovation shows. And the, um, they all follow the arc of any good story. So in the beginning, there's somebody who's like un, uh, happy but unhappy. They want something. They go through this pain. They have to give up something. And in the end, they are transformed. And what I would suggest is if I were an architect, I were running a small practice, I would, the very next engagement that I had, I would take a, not necessarily a film crew because you don't need a crew. I'd probably go a little bit better than an iPhone, but I would sit the client down in their existing house pre-renovation or pre-build and I would get them, I would essentially recreate that story arc, which is talk to me about um, the space now and the challenges now. And then document throughout, you don't have to follow the whole thing like a, like a television network would do, but you know, check in from time to time. If things start to go wrong, record that. But in the end, the most important thing is the beginning and then the end, and then have these people sitting in the space talking about you so you can see they're talking about how much value there is in this. And you, as somebody who's watching this video, I would create these little video segments as my marketing and I would have my prospective clients watch that at the right moments. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's very, very valuable. Um, I, the, the whole idea of the value conversation, actually your current episode, I, we're recording this on April 6th. This comes out in a few weeks, so we'll, we'll be a few weeks behind, but your current episode of Two Bobs, you're talking about this value conversation. Yeah, and, and so if people want to get deeper into that, they should go check out that episode. Uh, we'll link to that on our show notes, so you can go to the show notes and just click over and, and listen to that episode. Uh, super valuable. I very, I think that's that's so important for us to do. I don't architects aren't doing that right now. They're not having that value conversation. They're not pricing based on value. 
they're pricing very often just on either percentage or some hourly fee, and they don't even know what that's based on. And so I think having this value-based pricing will be so valuable. Um, and, and, and it talks all about it in this book, uh, Pricing Creativity. Um, you also have a, um, a win without pitching program, right? So there's a, you do a workshop. Yep. Yeah. So we, our program is in workshop form or it's in ongoing, uh, remote training over 12 week terms. Um, and the next, I've got a workshop coming up next week in Austin. It'll probably be passed by the time this goes live and we've got training that starts in April and then we do private onsite training for larger organizations too. So your listeners, if they're interested, can learn more at winwithoutpitching.com. And you're going to, you're going to be in the UK as well, correct? Yep, doing something June 25th and 26th. Yeah, so they with may, my... I have a bunch of UK listeners too. So um, oh, great! You should check that's that out. a that's an event um, that I used to do once a year with David C. Baker, my podcast co-host. So it's called the New Business Summit. So he and I are doing a two-day event in London, June 25th, 26th. Yeah. So if if anybody wants to do that, you go to uh, winwithoutpitching.com to learn yep, about that. Yeah, that's right. All right. Cool. Um, so definitely, I would definitely highly recommend all. Th- the two books and that program, but the two books are uh, Win Without Pitching Manifesto and uh, Pricing Creativity. Definitely check out both of those. Um, Blair, before we wrap up here, this has been a super valuable conversation and there's so much more to talk about, but we're running low on time here. Um, So I definitely recommend people go to the website, learn more about it. Maybe we'll have you back and talk more about this at another time. Uh, But I I want you to to answer our question here that we have everybody answer, uh, what's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Yeah, so what I've always said to my target audience, and it's a it's a challenge with creative professionals, and it's easiest to do when you're small, and that is to focus, to specialize in something. Um, we had somebody sign up for a program yesterday. She's based in Australia. She does interior. She does high end. Scandinavian design interiors for residences. That's pretty specialized. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, specialize first. And you can look at broadening out later if it makes sense to do so. Um, But any... Let's get into this a little bit. Let's let's spend a little bit more time on this. This is very important. This is something that I talk about all the time. I talk about the target market. and architects, very often, we want to be generalists. Yeah. So I want to just take a little bit more time here at the end and, and get into this a little bit because I, I think you have a different point of view on it. And so why? Why should we focus on one specific thing and specialize? Well, if I flip that around and say, why should you be a generalist? Like there's, there's just go out into the rest of the business world and just ask, or, you know, is it better to be a specialist or is it better to be a generalist? And everybody is going to look at you like you're nuts. <laughs> Like and creative people, including architects, they have this little conversation where they, you know, they've quit trying to justify it to me because they know it's an argument that's just full of shit. Sorry, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've, I've been talking about it for so long. Um, but they, the 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 challenge with the reason why most creative businesses are poorly positioned, they're too broadly focused. Yeah is because the nature of creativity is the ability to see, the ability to bring fresh perspective to a problem. So it is in the nature of the creative personality to be drawn to the problem they have not previously solved. 
So creative people want, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? I've never done, a client comes to you and says, hey, I, I need somebody with some expertise in this area. Oh, I've never done that before. That would be cool. Those are the words of a generalist, a specialist who has deep expertise in an area, who is invited to step outside of that expertise should get nervous. Oh, I've never done that, but I don't know, I don't know what the patterns are, right? So it's in the nature of a creative personality to want to do things that are new and different, but your business needs you to focus because expertise comes from, this comes from my podcast co-host David C. Baker, expertise comes from pattern matching, from observing the same things over and over again so you can start to see the patterns. You see the patterns in the problems, you start to see the patterns in the solution. So at the crux of this poorly positioned creative practice problem is this conflict between the creative person's individual desire for variety and the businesses need to focus. So they come up with these ridiculous ideas on why they should be a generalist. Meanwhile, the rest of the business world says, you're nuts. It's the specialists who make all the money. Yeah, exactly. And, and it makes everything else easier, right? It makes it easier to market. It makes yeah. it easier to sell. It makes it easier to price because you're only focused on one thing that you're an expert in. Yeah, your ability to pr command a price premium is rooted in a few different things, but the biggest one is the availability of substitutes. So if the client looks at you and says, well, I can see four or five or 45 or 4,500 other architects just like yours who can do this, then you have no power in the buy-sell relationship. You have no ability to dictate how your services will be bought and sold. You have no ability to command a price premium. It's not until you narrow your focus and you build deep specialized expertise, that's when you reduce the available alternatives to hiring you and now you have more power. You have more power to push back, to lead the sale, to lead the engagement and to command more money. Like it's arguing against this is like arguing against gravity. It's that absurd. <laughs> and if you are a small architect, you should specialize, period. Today, immediately, do it right yep, now. Decide absolutely. right now. And then stop doing everything else. You said the win without pitching manifesto. It's got 12 chapters, 12 proclamations. Yeah. That's the first proclamation one, is right. we will specialize. Yeah. Yeah. So this is my, my, my charge to each one of you listening. Go buy the win without pitching manifesto. Read it. It's very quick. Um, it will inspire you to change the way you're doing what you're doing. So go, go check that out. The website is winwithoutpitching.com. Uh, for pricing creativity, it's pricingcreativity.com. On Twitter, you can go thank Blair for being here. At Blair Ends, it's two ends. So it's Blair E N N S. And the podcast is twobobs.com. Go check it out. And uh, Blair Ends, thank you for being here at Entree Architect Podcast and for sharing your knowledge. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me. Now that is an episode that you want to share. Share this episode. This is episode 219. So the link to share this one is entrearchitect.com slash episode 219. And if you share it with a friend, we will continue to grow and more and more small firm architects will learn about what we're doing here. And the whole profession is going to benefit from that. So do it. Do it today. Share it. entrearchitect.com slash episode 219. This is an episode that I think will resonate with our community and, and uh, your friends will thank you for sharing it. EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 219. 
And don't forget to go visit my friends over at Arca Speak Podcast and Inside the Firm Podcast, two awesome podcasts uh, run by some awesome guys. Arca Speak Podcast and Inside the Firm Podcast. If you like Entree Architect Podcast, you're going to love Arca Speak and Inside the Firm. They dive deep into the profession and they have a lot of fun doing it. So go check them out. Um, the Entree Architect community on Facebook, that is the most interactive, most supportive, most encouraging, the most positive place on the internet for small firms. Come join us. It's free. EntreeArchitect.com slash group will get you there. It is 2,700 uh, 2, plus members and they're all architects or architectural students. So if you're an architect or an architectural student, go to EntreeArchitect.com slash group and request membership and come. Come and hang out with us and have some fun. It's a great, very interactive group. You post a question, you'll get 60, 70 answers to your question. It is awesome. And learn how to earn that elusive 20% profit that we all need to build a better business. Download our free course today at entrearchitect.com slash free course. If nothing else, if you do nothing else, download that course, follow it, do what it says, and you will be more successful. EntreeArchitect.com slash free course. It's free. My name is Mark Arlapage and I am an entrepreneur architect. And I encourage you to go build a better business. You can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. 
calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.